Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Choose Inclusion podcast and our Black Voices Matter segment. I am here with Nina, as always. How are you, Nina? Good. How's everyone? Doing pretty good. Um, we're excited today. We, we have a, a local uh, CEO, uh, community builder, speaker, Jice Johnson, uh, who leads the Black Business Initiative. And so we thought it would be it'd be a really cool conversation to be able to listen to you, Jice, about about that aspect of this, about you know black business owners and and um, you know black entrepreneurs and and what George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, how that impacts all of that. So welcome, Joyce and or Joyce Jice. Sorry, I was combining your first and last name. Welcome, Jice, and how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Well, so yeah, what, what's, I guess, what's, talk about your experience um, since George Floyd's murder and, and this, this renewed fight. What, what's been going on in, in your world? What are you seeing in the community? Um, well, for me personally, um, it's been it's been a, a whirlwind, which has been uh, good in a certain sense uh, for the mission and the cause and the things that we've been working on for the last um, five and six years, and also um, you know kind of bittersweet, a little unfortunate that it takes these types of sacrifices, um, you know, an unwilling sacrifice on behalf of George Floyd and and um, Ahmaud Arbery and Breon Taylor and the names and the list can go on and on and on, um, you know, to get us to the place where the things that we've been saying and the things that we've been highlighting, um, you know, are finally being uh, paid attention to. And um, I'm actually, I'm gonna correct myself. I won't say finally, but being are being paid attention to again uh, because we've been in this fight for a long time. And um, at times for some people it can feel very new, uh, but for our community um, from a historical lens, you know, we've been fighting these battles for quite some time now. And so um, we know that at times they're not in the focus of the, the broader community. And then um, right now it is. And so we want to take advantage of that and continue to move the needle forward. Um, from a community perspective, uh, it's, it's a, a plethora of emotions and the things that are happening. Um, you see people awakening, you see people who are angry, you see people who are hurt, um, and, uh, and some sense of, in, of in-between, right, and just trying to figure out where uh, everyone is, how we can best assist them or support them in their own journey with regard to like the, you know, the, the, the broader black community and, and put that in context. So um, we've seen <laughs> all types of emotions and, um, and just trying to, you know, help people get where they need to be, um, where they can, you know, take whatever energy it is that they're feeling and actually put that towards something productive. Yeah, as a CEO of the Black Business Initiative, well, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what the Black Business Initiative is about and what you're doing, but then also how has recent events impacted what's happening with you? Yeah, so the Black Business Initiative is an organization that was started in 2015 and our um, 
our overall mission and goal is to um, help Black-owned businesses start growing scale. And we use um, entrepreneurship as kind of the centering of a, a broader conversation around Black economics, just recognizing that uh, wherever it is that you fall in terms of your activism, whether it is for um, uh, social justice, criminal justice, housing, um, food justice, education, environment, all of those things essentially tie back into economics. And when you don't have a strong economic base and you don't have uh, economic being both political and financial base, then you are, uh, you lack leverage oftentimes in order to move things forward that actually benefit your community. So um, although we, we frame a lot of our conversation around entrepreneurship and financial literacy, um, it's really as a broader context in terms of what we need to do inside of the community uh, in order for us to advocate for po effective policy that actually helps and benefits us and that doesn't continue to uh, decimate our, our, our socioeconomic group. Um, so that's kind of what we do in a nutshell. And then throw that second question back at me. Uh, how have you seen kind of recent events impact what you're doing, the organization? So um, I would say that the recent events more so have, are highlighting the work that we've been doing more so than impacting us. The impact that we are seeing is that uh, where we really struggled for um, a while and, and we're, we're certainly not where we need to be, but um, the, uh, the ability to get access to um, grants, uh, sponsorship and donations, have, we've seen an uptick in that. Um, and that's very, it, it's, it's again, another bittersweet thing like donations and grants and sponsorships, those are not, uh, those are not, you know, sustainable forms of building uh, capital uh, for your business, right? But they help in the sense that we have always provided low cost and no cost workshops, training and coaching to our community. So we've always worked to get in those types of funds in order for us to um, support the, the uh, work of the organization. But, um, you know, it, it's, at times it's like, oh, this is really great because now we can, you know, we can take on new people and we can help in more ways. And we're being, we're getting an influx and an increase of people coming to us and, and we're building the capacity to be able to handle that, that influx. So that's great. On the other side, you know, it, it's, it's a bit frustrating because uh, for the last five years, the number one reason why we've uh, struggled to get funding is because our target market is the black community. So we've literally been told, like, can you change this to POC? Can you change this to minority? Can you change this to black and brown? And I'm like, <laughs> why is it so hard for, you know, an, an organization to focus in on the black community? Uh, we've never turned away anyone from our doors. We put it in our name. So it's pretty clear who our target market is. The Black Business Initiative is, you know, built for the black community. Um, but we've had... A, a lot of people come through our doors at any given point in time. We've never turned anyone away. And yet, because our focus has been where it is, we've really struggled in that sense. So um, it's, it's good that we're seeing this influx. We hope that we are able to continue to have our focus on the Black community um, and still receive that. Like, we're not going to change our focus. Let me reframe. We're not going to change our focus, but um, that we continue to receive support going forward so that we can continue to offer our programming and our services at low and no cost to our community. I think that's such a good point. I, I feel like, you know, in, in times like these, like people tend to get really reactionary and then they 
flood, then donations get flooded to organizations, right? Which isn't a bad thing, but it's, it's like you said, it's not sustainable change. And it's like, just cause you flood one time because something's hit the media and now you're aware of it. Six, what are you doing six months from now? One month or one year from now? Like, what are you doing to make this sustainable support? And I think that a lot of people just don't think about their money that way, right? They don't think about how are we gonna create systemic change? And so I think that's a really, really good point you bring up. Thank you. And yeah, and that, that has been one of our, our um, conversations now around our strategy. It's like, okay, well, we have, you know, some funds to be able to do some things that we've been wanting to do for a while. Um, as I mentioned, certainly we've had an influx of, of um, new businesses coming in, looking for services and looking for help. So we're excited to be able to provide them those services and to provide them that help. Um, but we are keeping our eye exactly like almost exactly that six months time frame out like okay what, what about what about you know the the first half of 2021 you know what are we looking like at that point and so trying to take this time right now to think strategically um, about how to solidify maybe a stronger consistent donor base um, as well as some more consistent or, or year over year type of financing and then also like how do we move our community from needing low and no cost services to getting to a place where they can afford market rate services as well so all of those are part of our thought process what what kind of sticks out to me is and, and you know, you, you talk about all the resources that you that you offer, but how what and but then you go to you know when when these these groups are like, well, can't you use different language other than black, right? Like, what? How how do you explain like the, the, like there is this layer, and I think that's what a lot of people maybe don't understand, and and why their responses are very reactionary, or you know that they're like, well, I've worked hard my whole life. You know, I didn't grow up rich as a white person, but what people I don't think understand are like these are these are systemic things that they they they've like permanently been there, right? They're permanent obstacles that, unless this fight succeeds, those things don't change. Like, how, how do you how do you explain those obstacles to people who who just are, don't don't get it right away? So first I try to assess whether or not someone is genuine in their uh, quest to understand something, right? Um, I'm not here to argue about my 36 years of lived oppression. Um, my father is 74, like these things are not long-standing. Like my father grew up in Jim Crow South in, in Houston, Texas, right? My mother grew up um, at the start of the civil rights movement in, as a biracial child, my mother's half Japanese, half black, as a biracial child um, in the Bay Area in the 50s. Like these things are not far removed. And so I don't speak from a place of, um, of like, you know, some weird nostalgia, right? Like we're talking about actual facts um, that I can tie back to my personal family and then further and further back. Um, so 
if someone is just being argumentative and framing their arguments in the form of a question, like I just don't even engage, right? I have better places to put my energy and it's not into that. But when someone genuinely wants to know, and this even includes inside the black community, because I think oftentimes we think that all black people are like the experts of black oppression and that's not accurate. Like our school systems don't teach quite a bit of information. So a lot of the information that I know now is because over the last six and seven years, I've been dedicated to read and research and there's still so much more to know. I'm still learning new things all the time, like pretty much daily. Uh, and I'm intentional about looking for the information. So if that hasn't been your experience, it's a good, you know, a good uh, uh, guess that you would not, you know, know some of these things, right? So um, from that perspective, if someone is genuinely trying to understand, the first thing I do is I come from a historical perspective because we like to think that these things are a long time ago. You know, slavery was a long time ago, right? That had nothing to do with me. And we don't understand. Um, and to a lot of people's credit, the school systems don't teach it. So, you know, again, I just want to reiterate that it's not someone's fault that they don't understand. But then once you know what you don't know, it is your responsibility to try and learn that and figure it out. So I like to come from that historical perspective so I can bring us all the way up to like present day and say, these are why we're experiencing some of these things. So the idea of a meritocracy society is in and of itself um, a white privilege, right? And in particular, a white male privilege. And so you can know, like there's a, fra a phrase in the black community, you can work, you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And what we know uh, inside of our community is that when you see us, there is a bias that's automatically there. That bias is longstanding. It's very built into uh, almost every facet of our media and it's built into propaganda. And at one point, these are things and still to a certain extent are things that are even taught inside of our school systems. So when we look at a lot of the biases that exist, there is very specific race specific um, language that dates back uh, to not all that long ago. And so uh, the other framing of that is that we often talk about slavery, but we don't talk about Jim Crow. And Jim Crow was another hundred years of very oppressive uh, laws that when we talk about things like the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, actually the 13th Amendment abolished slavery unless you were incarcerated. So really Jim Crow was the start of the mass incarceration era where they were continuously incarcerating the black community in order to really re-enslave us. So we think that there are certain dynamics that are set up that those dynamics don't really exist. Um, and that's where, that is where the uh, idea around meritocracy really loses its hold is you think that where you are in life is because of the work that you do. And what you can find is that if you are a woman, if you are black, if you are brown, if you are indigenous, um, you know, if you are these things that you can work really, really, really hard. And there are still some barriers that uh, maybe a few people slip through but that the numbers don't hold well for the majority of us to slip through or, or for us to slip through in, 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 in an accurate proportion. And so that is the type of conversation that we have to have, that this meritocracy idea of I get what I earn is really only applicable to white men. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, thank you for all the historical context of that too. I think it's so important. Um, to understand the history of what has happened in this country in order to understand where we are today. I was wondering, um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, when we talk, like you talked about privilege, um, can you tell us a little bit about like, what are the things that black business owners 
experience or that you've you've seen black business owners experience that are unique to them that maybe people don't know about sure um so there's a lot there but let me see if i can try and summarize a couple of maybe strong points um the black business initiative is built off of five pillars so we have a heavy focus on business acumen um, mentorship, access to capital, patronage, and policy. So um, I can take any one of those facets and really dig in. Let's start with policy. We don't like to address race-specific policy today. So we kind of talk from this language of, uh, you know, these anti-discrimination phrases, right? So we take all creeds, all religion, all sexual orientations, all yada, yada, yada. Um, but the history is very different. So the history actually did have very race specific language written in it. And because of that gave these certain advantages at that time uh, that have carried over into today. So um, if you take race specific policy that now is not race specific in order to actually fix that imbalance, uh, let's jump over to something like accessing capital. If you're looking to access capital, uh, the banks basically look at these five C's and we don't have to go into all of them, but the banks are going to look at five C's, right? So you're going to have your credit. Well, 60% of the black community is underbanked or unbanked. So first of all, just looking at credit in and of itself puts 60% of the black community at a disadvantage. Um, why that exists, again, can trace all the way back to during the emancipation when we were told we'll give you 40 acres and a mule well those 40 acres were tied to something those 40 acres were tied to um a level of power that that uh, at that time the white community was not prepared to give to the black community so they said we'll give you 40 acres and a mule then we decide to take it back instead what they did was they gave the black community a bank and they said let's just let you start building your own economy here's this bank the freedmen's bank the freedmen's bank was was written into uh, into law in congress however the freedmen's bank wasn't allowed to do lending so how do banks make their money through fees and lending so you have a bank that essentially can't perform or operate as a bank, right? And then when everything was said and done, it was this like huge savings account that was then subsequently raided and the money was taken out of it. So when you look at the black uh, community who doesn't trust banking, where they aren't affordable and safe banking products inside of the black community, uh, then it's no wonder that 60% of us are underbanked. And then when we need to access capital for our uh, businesses, we don't have the first C, credit. <laughs> So it's written in a race neutral language, but because of these historical issues that, that, you know, come all the way up to present day, it's really not race neutral. Um, you can take another one like collateral. So we can get into redlining and then acknowledge why the black community doesn't have a sufficient access to home ownership and how home ownership is one of the key places that uh, the white community will pull equity or a line of credit out of their home and use that to fund their business. So there's all these things that sound very race neutral in the policy, but if you go back through history, you can literally bring it up to present day and find out why the black community has a very hard time having all five of these C's. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because um, I think that what, what we, the learning there, and I think like for our audience, right, who are these 
who, who are leaders in organizations. A lot of them are white and, and uh, white males at that. But the, the translation to my, in my mind is that they need, to, they need to go back and analyze all of their policies and procedures specifically for the language that you're talking about. And not only that, but how those policies and procedures are, are executed throughout their organization. Because I think, like to your point, it, you know, on the surface, it seems like everything's equitable and, and diverse and, and inclusive. But really at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's what's really been put into those policies and procedures that are, that are governing everything, right? And, and, and unless we do a deep dive analysis and understanding of all of that, these things will continue to exist no matter what performative, you know, marketing messaging or whatever we put out there is. I mean, would you, does that, would you agree with that? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's saying, you know, let's start a race. We'll give you a head start. Okay. Hold on, everybody stop. Now we're all just going to play by the same rules, but it doesn't matter because you're already, <laughs> you know, so you're already, you're already light years ahead. Right. And so we don't have the opportunity to uh, bring everyone up to speed than us continuing to all push forward. Like all things are neutral and all things are, are, are equitable or fair is not an accurate depiction of where we are now. So, I mean, if, if, if our listeners could hear kind of one thing from you that you want them to all hear, what would be that thing you would want everyone to hear? Oh, well, now that's just putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what I, I don't know the one. Thing. Um, <laughs> I um, sit back and listen is the ultimate goal. And so, you know, if, it's it's up to you if you if you have anything to share. Otherwise, I can ask you a totally separate question. It's up to you. <laughs> uh, let me let me try and see if I can if I can pull a thought. Um, what would be something that I would want everyone to hear? You know, I think that um, what here's what I do want people to hear. I do want people to hear that it is okay to see color. Um, my blackness is a part of my lived experience and has created and developed. Uh, who I am. The same thing as my womanhood, the same thing as my motherhood. I mean, these experiences that we have um, shape us to be who we are. And so not seeing color is not really like that. that that's not aiding in the conversation, right? What, what does help is to see color and to see it as being equitable and to begin to dissect why we have not seen color in an equitable sense before. Perfect. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, that love it. That that's a, a great way, I think, to to end. And Joyce, again, you know, thank you for your work. Thank you for everything. Um, please let us know, like, how we can help. Uh, how we can get information out to the right people through our network, through our audience. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a real pleasure. I again, I just love learning. Like, I've learned so much. It's selfishly you know if, if nobody listens I, I feel like I've just been able to listen and learn so thank you um, for for trusting us and, and giving us this opportunity to listen absolutely I appreciate you having me
thank you, Nina, and thank you, uh, audience. We um, we really appreciate it. We're going to continue to do this um, this particular segment of the Choose Inclusion podcast. You can check everything out on chooseinclusion.com for the upcoming schedule for this week and, and past shows. Um, and again, thank you. Keep listening, keep learning, and we'll, we'll talk to you all soon. Take care. Take care, everyone.